This is The Art Life. Hello, I'm Sandra Robinson Burns, writer and the founder of Heroin Training. Here with me to introduce today's interview is my co-host, actress and activist, Grace Gordon. Hi, Grace. Hi, Sandra. So we have a really um, special and and timely interview today that I've been really looking forward to. And I'm so glad that you 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 were able to get because she must be so busy. So tell me, tell our audience about Katie. Today's conversation is with Katie Hawthorne. And we talked about liveness in theater, what that word means, how we define liveness, what it feels like and how digital tools interact with that and change the way that we perceive aliveness. This is the topic of Katie's PhD research that she's been working on for many years now, and suddenly it is globally relevant as virtual spaces and digital tools are pretty much our only option for enjoying performance right now. So I was so excited to get Katie's perspective on this, and this was one of those conversations, Grace, that has just stayed with me in the days since recording the interview, where I keep noticing examples of liveness in my daily life, and it's gotten me thinking about it in new ways. It's refreshed my perspective on how I interact with this concept of of what it means to be live. So I am so excited for everyone else to enjoy that perspective and new vocabulary words as well. I was so thrilled to learn when listening to the interview that um that you know her PhD is in in more than just uh liveness live stream for music like musicians because when you had told me about her and I read her guardian article uh I was under the impression that she was you know writing about um just like musicians going on live stream which is very interesting and relevant and you know coming up a lot right now uh and then you guys get into the discussion about theater which I wasn't expecting because I just didn't have the context so um there's so much valuable information and I hope that the the performers and theater lovers really enjoy this episode. I am so happy to have Katie on the show because she her research is in theater and she's also a music journalist. So she has a perspective on a couple of different aspects of the performing arts industry and was able to comment on a variety of things. So why don't we get to it? Let's jump in. Hello, everyone. I am so excited to introduce you to today's guest. I am here virtually with Katie Hawthorne, who is a music journalist, and she's also in the final months of her PhD research at the University of Edinburgh, focusing on how digital tools are expanding the definitions of liveness in theater. Katie, welcome to The Art Life. 
Hello, I'm so happy to be here virtually with you. As we just said, it's very appropriate, I feel, that we should meet this way. Absolutely. I pretty much as soon as the quarantine started and live streams started to become our main mode of viewing performance, my first thought was we need to get Katie on the show and hear your insights on this uh, this niche subject that you have been researching for several years now, and to do it in this format across the same city, but <laughs> through technology <laughs> is only the uh, is only fitting for the occasion. So I would love to hear a bit more about your research and what it's like for you to have your research topic suddenly become so widely relevant. It has been so weird. Um, just as a small example, like I've always felt that my parents aren't fully sure what my PhD is about, which is fine. <laughs> like it's totally fine. Um, but I got a call the other night from my mum, who'd watched one of the National Theatre live streams on YouTube. Except it's not a live stream technically, but we can talk about that later too. Um, and she rang me because she was like, I've been watching One Man, Two Governors with your father and we've been sitting here and we've been wondering, is it live? And I was like, oh, here we are. They've arrived. Like, they finally, <laughs> like, we need to ring Katie and ask her whether or not this counts as something that is live. And it made my day. It was so nice. Um but other than that, it's been incredibly overwhelming, truthfully, from like mm. a research perspective, because I feel like I should be more useful or like uh, capitalizing on this moment in some mm -hmm. way, which feels like quite a gross way to put it. Um, but also I've been finding it really hard to work and think because it's a pandemic <laughs> in general. Um, I've been also worrying about, you know, should I... I'm supposed to be finishing my thesis next month, but should I put that on hold and try and build all of this into it? Mm. I don't think so. But yeah, it's been, who would have seen this coming? I mean, yeah, it's very strange to see it go from being such a kind of niche enterprise into, um, into seeing everybody use the vocabulary that I've been spending so long thinking about, I think. I think you described on a whole, how a lot of us are feeling as well of wanting to make the most of what's going on and suddenly having different perspectives, be they just the perspective of time and being at home. I think a lot of people who are creating things and researching things in general are are faced with this um, potential opportunity. And we always want to make make something out of it as artistic people. So I can very much relate to that. And I have a feeling that a lot of people listening will as well. So in terms of how your research works, can you fill us in on what has become busy for you? How do you conduct your research around, um, around the different live streams and streams that are going on? I think at the moment, I've got a couple of things on the go so I'm writing the final chapter to my thesis which is actually not about live streams at all um and also editing an article that will be coming out 
later in the year that is very much about live streams, but in the context of a specific German theatre festival between the years 2016 to 19. So like not related to the corona situation at all, which is kind of um, a good way for me to kind of segue into saying that my whole kind of take on liveness and what live streams can be is that I think the way that we experience um, liveness, you know, is that kind of magic in the air. People often say that feeling of maybe togetherness or that anything can happen, et cetera, et cetera. It's quite a myth in the theatre, at least, is that I argue that it is contextual and it's different in terms of kind of not only just like subjective personal experiences, but maybe the funding landscape could influence how a culture perceives of liveness or a venue or the medium that it's being used. You know, it's the way we interact with an Instagram live story is very different to how we interact with, say, um, someone live tweeting a TV show on Twitter, you know? Um, Mm. And so I've been thinking about all of these things, watching this kind of stampede towards live streaming kind of take off across the arts industry certainly in the in the UK and also like across the world obviously and yeah it's it's been kind of amazing to watch people suddenly reckon with it as a serious tool I suppose mm-hmm. um but I'm also full of concerns I think too about what it could do for the industry both in terms of the short-term kind of terrible situation and also for the long longer term kind of ramifications part of your research is in live streams and i have to admit that i am one of those snobby live performance purists and you have invited me to go see live streams with you in the past and i've been like my personal view is I would rather see any production live than sit in a cinema and watch one that's being recorded elsewhere. And so we're in this strange situation where that's the only option now. But before we were in lockdown, what was the appeal to you on this kind of performance? What am I missing out on? Oh, totally. And like, I get told that all the time. Um, I wrote an article recently that was kind of given the headline by the editors, you know, can a live stream gig ever replace a real thing? And then I just had dozens of men on Twitter um, tweeting me with just the word no. (laughs) Um, And I was like, cool, thanks. Um, You can finish my PhD. That's great. Um, uh, And I I think the appeal for me is that I I realized that a lot of what feels live about live theater as we call it in like the traditional sense is often staged and I don't mean that in like a I don't feel the magic I don't I don't want to sound really cold and clinical you know but um I became really interested in what theater makers can do to make a certain event feel more live potentially or how they can kind of capitalize on that kind of fears in the air in different ways um like a really common example of that is um mistakes theater makers often 
might like to maybe pretend that something's going wrong and then catch it, you know, to show their control over the dynamic and to give the audience that little thrill that maybe everything's going to implode, you know. Um, and so, and like that happens actually way more commonly than you'd think. And it's just a neat little trick to remind everybody that what's happening is is kind of happening in front of you and to distract from the fact that most likely this play has been performed to like 20 other audiences almost exactly in the same way over the last three weeks, for example. You know, it's a device to make that night, that particular night feel particularly special. And so I don't see that as detracting from the magic. I see it as like a, it's the magician's tools almost. Um, You can still love the magic, even if you want to know how it works, which I did. And then it got me thinking, everyone always says, well, this kind of theatre is live and, you know, kind of digitally distributed theatre, like a live stream, like isn't live, like it's lacking something. And so I became really interested in thinking about how this kind of theatre, which people think is live, and how how those maybe those same techniques that are used to conjure that liveness could actually be transferable or still present in the the kinds of shows that we consider not to be live in that traditional sense. So um, I started going to loads of live stream shows as a kind of my entrance into this line of research to see if I could see any of those same kind of tricks popping up or if it was a whole new world of like magic tricks, I guess, to persuade the audiences that what they were seeing was special in the here and now in the same way that like more traditional performers do it um so it was probably unfair when I was trying to get you to come to live streams with me I wanted to go for some nerdy philosophical experiment (laughs) and was just like Sandra come with me um whereas if you weren't fascinated by that very niche thing then I can see why you were like no (laughs) I don't want to (laughs) do you know so um yeah that's kind of what got me interested I think well, usually a nerdy philosophical experiment would be the root of persuasion <laughs> for me. So I perhaps <laughs> you didn't bring in your research enough into the um, the social invitation. I don't think I knew fully at the time. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I think I didn't know that's what I was interested in so specifically when I was like, I think I was just, you know, baby researcher trying to figure it out and like couldn't, was just like, do you want to go see recorded Hamlet I don't even think it looks that good I just want to go because it's recorded and you'd be like no (laughs) and I think that's a fair enough answer to a crappy invitation (laughs) so you have since grown up from being a baby researcher and what what does that look like what is the clarity that you have found in what you're looking for when you're watching a live stream for research I think the clarity is coming still, or at least I hope that it is. Um, I think for me, one of the important things has been kind of thinking about the language that I use when I talk about these different kinds of theatre and trying not to lean too heavily on prescriptive kind of this is live, this isn't, you know, um, ways of describing things. And I notice that I do it as a shorthand sometimes just to get a conversation done. But in my head, I'm like, well, everything's live. It's kind of how I'm thinking. Do you know if it's just that things, liveness manifests differently in different contexts, but that makes you a very boring conversationalist if you're down the pub, (laughs) for example. But I find myself like policing that language in myself a lot more now, which I don't know if that's a a good thing. Um, 
it's definitely evidence of like how much my own language for these kinds of things has grown since I was a baby researcher um and what do I look for when I'm watching a live stream that's what you asked isn't it yeah I look for evidences of of mistakes (laughs) or like um kind of intentional mistakes or otherwise like I mentioned before um I there's a story I always fall back on that I went to watch a live stream of the Tempest um from the Royal Shakespeare Company and a storm like an actual physical storm interrupted the broadcast just before Prospero gave his big finale speech and that was just the end of the night and it was actually amazing (laughs) It, it was like better than I could have ever hoped for because it just felt so whimsical and like at the whim of the elements more than you know had it been being performed there in front of me it could have been you know so sometimes it all comes together but from a more um kind of research heavy perspective I'll be watching the audiences like a part of my work is called ethnography which is kind of you know investigating how people behave and respond in certain situations so I'll be watching audiences noticing when they clap and if there's a discrepancy between their reactions and the reactions that I can hear of the audience who are present during the recording, if that makes sense. So you're talking about the audience that is in the screening with you versus the yes. uh, the live audience that's there with the performance? Yes, except the audience with me are usually alive also. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yes, um, that's exactly what I mean. And so I'll be looking for like, you know, is there a discrepancy between which jokes land maybe and which don't? And like, is there different kind of pauses and when people are willing to clap? Sometimes cinema audiences just don't want to clap at all, which I kind of get. Um, I'm particularly interested in camera angles and how the presentation of a live event um, through kind of different filming devices can like change the way that we see it as live. That's like a current thing I'm super interested in and how some of the higher budget shows tend to make it very swoopy and filmic and do all these gorgeous close-ups on like an actor's single tear that you'd never normally get to see, um, especially not from the cheap seats, which is where I usually am. Um, but actually how they can um, kind of aid an audience in forgetting that it's a piece of theatre so much. And the cheaper ones that show all of the stage at the same time kind of retain a kind of theatricality that feels more like theatre to me because you can choose where you're looking in a way that isn't quite as forced obviously you can still choose where you look with a film but it doesn't it feels more kind of open-ended yeah um so I'm interested in that a lot but I'm still figuring that out I have to say (laughs) and um oh what was the other thing oh yeah I've been um collecting twitter data so when shows use hashtags to be like oh Macbeth is live in all of these cinemas tonight or whatever I'll collect the twitter data and see if I can find a commonality in kind of spikes of interest online um you know if people start tweeting about going to see this show um further ahead in advance and they might for something for like a theatre event in their city anyway or if audiences across the nation all tend to tweet together in the interval or something like that just to see if I can map that interaction in a slightly different kind of time frame and space so yeah there's tons of different ways you can 
kind of dig into the, the weird phenomena that is live streaming. Um, and I know that I don't want, I, you probably don't want me to talk about it for like the next million years, but like one of the other really interesting things, um, for me at least, is that the the way that it works in the UK is super different to how it works in other countries. Oh, really? In terms of, yeah. In what way? In terms of like, so in the UK, we have like quite an established like hierarchy, like pre-pandemic. Now it's all going down and I don't know what's going to happen. But pre-pandemic, we had um, the National Theatre and the Royal Shakespeare Company easily as the most established live streamers. They're very glorious, beautiful, swoopy broadcasts apparently cost like £250,000 to make each time each time um as in well they'd record it once and they broadcast it once live with scare quotes you can't see but I use my fingers <laughs> I will um, imagine to audiences around around yeah around the country and then perhaps the next week the recording that was made during that live broadcast would be played again in those same cinemas around the country and they would call it an encore and they would charge maybe three pounds less than had you gone the previous week when it was a live broadcast but the product you'd be receiving is exactly the same but it just doesn't share that simultaneity with the production it makes this kind of quite bizarre hierarchy often the encores are um screened kind of like midday on a weekday or something whereas obviously the the live streamed broadcasts would be at eight o'clock on a Thursday night you know when a typical theatre performance would take place so you get these very different audiences and who can attend when and maybe you get more elderly audiences on the midday Wednesday performance for example and you get that slight tax if you go to the first one for seeing it quote-unquote live um so yeah we've classically british we managed to make a very convoluted actually like kind of i don't want to say discriminatory because it feels a strong word but there's definitely like a hierarchy of experiences going on that people pay more for or less for depending um but half of my phd looks at um live streaming in scotland specifically and then the rest the other half of my phd looks at the same things but in berlin and germany because I was curious um, as to how far like kind of cultural differences could shift how this worked. And choosing two relatively affluent, um, kind of similar on paper really, you know, like capitals of culture, quote unquote, Western European cities. And if I could find differences between these two, then it, it, it stands to reason that there'd be much bigger differences between other cities around the world that have less in common. So that's why I looked at these two different places. And so I was looking at live streaming in Berlin and basically, apart from being able to stream content from the UK or maybe from New York um, in cinemas in Berlin, like you could in Edinburgh, say, if you wanted to go see the National Theatre production, they don't make really paid for live streams between theatres in Germany at all. Like, it just doesn't mm. exist. And there's this really prestigious theatre festival and one year a performance couldn't attend. And so they decided to make a kind of premiere screening of it instead. 
and tickets for five euro and included a glass of wine. Um, so that's basically free with a glass of wine. Um, and for comparison, it would maybe be like £27 in the UK to see a live broadcast if you don't have any kind of, um, what's the word, like a student card or something. So that's a massive price difference. And still, they couldn't sell it out. Nobody wanted to go. Nobody was interested. They were like, why am I paying money for that? Doesn't make any sense. Um, yeah, just fell flat on its face. Um, and I just found that like very clear illustration of completely different attitudes to well not only liveness but like theater and accessibility and like who gets what very interesting and who gets wine um, yes and who gets wine most importantly how charming no one ever gives me wine when I go to the ones in England or Scotland um and I basically like long story short I'm pretty sure it's down to um the funding systems mm -hmm. because in the UK like a lot of the money for the performing arts is centralized like it's mostly in London right and then they like stream out the content to the rest of us like peasants that don't get to go to London to see it <laughs> um you know our national theatre doesn't come here very often but it does stream shows to us quite a lot whereas in Germany they don't really have a national theatre in that same way and all of the different states in Germany receive very like healthy arts funding and each state tends to have its own version of that national theatre, I guess, that services that area. Mm. And they're all of a really high quality. There's no one most important theatre. And so, like, who would be streaming to who? Like, the power system just isn't as uneven as it is in the UK. So, yeah. it Like, you wouldn't expect things like funding structures as dry as they sound to influence what you see as being live or not live. But turns out... It does. <laughs> Thus ends my TED talk. <laughs> well, that I I would love to to watch the full TED talk version of this because it is so interesting <laughs> and something that I've been kind of thinking about. But I know that you're more informed on how this is actually playing out. And something that I'm thinking about in this coronavirus crisis, when the theaters are dark. And when we're we're all peasants who can't go to London and see things live, we're all in the same boat. We are. <laughs> but there is this hierarchy of it's lovely that the Met is streaming recorded operas, that the National Theatre is showing things, that Andrew Lloyd Webber has his own YouTube programming. But these are all productions that had the thousands and thousands of pounds of of budget to record these large-scale productions and that's what's that's what's in the vault right now so something that I'm wondering about is what about everybody else what about the people who uh, didn't have the foresight to record their live performances and also smaller artists perhaps artists who were preparing to go to the fringe festival that has been canceled how does somebody who is not the National Theatre survive right now? How do they perform right now? Do you have any stories about people who are doing something a little different? Yeah, for sure. And you make such a good point about how those big budget theatres can appear to rise to this demand in such a different way. 
Um, and that, yeah, it is a money thing. You know, they have these gloriously recorded performances in the vaults, as you say, and then they can wheel them out and potentially charge people to watch them again, but they don't actually have to make anything new to fill this void right now. And I found it fascinating actually watching lots of independent theatres, theatre companies and makers in the UK, like scrambling to deal with how on earth they were going to translate their work into a digital setting to kind of compensate for the lack of income during the pandemic. And then there was a week delay, maybe, whilst the RSC and the National Theatre figured out what to do. And I thought that was really interesting because those are the companies that have been making huge financial gains from live streaming. But now people can't go to cinemas, right? So they're figuring out how to not give away the stuff that they would normally charge for free, charge for for free. Mm -hmm. Um, But yet they do have all of this content ready to go. So I found that tension really fascinating that they were obviously like, oh, God, (laughs) what do we we can't undermine our whole business model here, but we, you know, we need to figure out how to capitalize on this. Um, and like I side note, found it kind of dark almost that, you know, Fleabag, the Phoebe Waller-Bridge play slash phenomena um, is being streamed from the National Theatre Live, but via Amazon Prime, mm. um, which feels really horrible, kind of, you know, especially given though that Amazon was, Amazon has responded to this pandemic but it makes business sense because the National Theatre didn't have a platform that could monetize the archives that they had. So they obviously had to take a beat and think about it. So then you cut to the smaller theatre companies who don't have that kind of budget or work in the vaults, like you said. Um, And they're all trying to figure out how to make new work like yesterday to put online and hopefully get some money back from it. And that just feels grossly unequal Mm. (laughs) for one you know it feels really unfair that these companies should have to be grappling in such under such like emergency conditions and yeah I mean I have seen people really you know rise beautifully to the challenge I just wish that they didn't have to I guess is how I feel about that and you know these producing these streams is stressful and expensive and you know not all work is designed to be adapted in that way. Um, I spent a week chatting with the kind of artist behind this um, smaller theatre company in the UK called Yes, Yes, No, No. And their work is amazing. I'm a big fan of theirs in general. And I, I spent a week chatting to their like guy, artist guy in charge, Sam, um, who was trying desperately to find a way to live stream their show instead. And actually they had so many um, difficulties thrown their way and they dealt with them all admirably, but in the end it couldn't happen because unless your theatre company lived together now, it makes it incredibly hard to record any work, um, which sounds really obvious, but I literally hadn't thought of it early on. Um, so not only does it make performing really hard, if it's anything more than a one-person show, but it also makes rehearsals really hard. Um, Yeah, I just, you know, literal physical complications during this time make it really difficult for people to put work together, especially work that's, like, 
predicated on people being in the same room and like maybe touching each other like god forbid do you know at the moment can't do it so um he was up against that and he was also up against the fact that in the uk a lot of our theaters are really old and the wi-fi in them is historically terrible Mm. (laughs) and so trying to stream out of those was just like architecturally impossible it wasn't even you know our faulty zoom like link or whatever it was literally these walls are too thick (laughs) we can't do it um so before you even get to the kind of questions of artistic content and how you can adapt work and like what techniques you could use to make it really cool and like so on and so on like these literal hurdles are in the way of our third companies at the moment from making brand new works which again I don't think they should have to be anyway but yeah it's it's a mess (laughs) yeah it's similar to what you were describing at the beginning of this conversation just about the pressure to create something and in the case of performing artists it's to sometimes scrap entirely what you're working on in order to adapt to what technology is allowing and that on its own sounds like such a task not to mention the general stress that is in the air yeah for sure and like something I've been saying to people lately who are interested in making this kind of work is that you know live streaming is a really cool interesting like format medium um, whatever you want to call it tool um, but it's not the only um, thing out there the only digital thing out there that you can explore during a time like this you know and like I think because of it having live in its title people think that it is automatically the only kind of potential um stand-in for a more traditional theater experience when actually if they were to pre-record their material spend some time editing it um format it the way they want you know really artistically make sure that it is how they want it to be and then streamed that recording rather than performing live to camera, they'd probably have a product that they were so much more comfortable with than, you know, trying to, you know, switch on Facebook Live and, like, let's go. Um, So I've been trying to talk people down from thinking that live streaming in the most, like, pure definition of it, i.e., like, hitting record and doing it immediately for your audiences, that it's not the only thing to do. Like, it's very stressful, (laughs) actually. And, like... I guess it's the difference between us recording this conversation now and editing out all my mistakes, (laughs) which I love, um, versus us doing this on like live radio, right? And then me realizing that there's no backseas. (laughs) So, well, did you want to insert an intentional mistake just so that people feel like it's live? Well, exactly. Have I? Haven't I? (laughs) Who knows? Um, (laughs) The magician never tells. Um, But, uh, yeah, you know, so I've been trying to talk to theatre companies and say, like, look, we our experiences of liveness is way more nuanced than you think. You know, you don't have to make it a live stream in that sense for it to feel live and meaningful to your audiences. You can use some of those other tools and tricks that you know and apply them in a different context. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not only that kind of shared time that makes something feel live. It's kind of my whole 
soapbox rant at the moment <laughs> trying to save people some stress really and money and yeah unneeded worry during a very worrying time it is a relief to hear yeah yeah I think um I think you make a really good point that the word live in live streaming is enticing yeah for and sure. not not necessary and as an audience member I think I can feel that residual stress of <laughs> uh of the the pressure that is put on performers to do things a certain way for the technology to work out. So, yeah, I will I will second that advice. And I yeah. wanted to ask you as well, since we've been talking about theater and your research is in theater, but you also are a music journalist and have a music background, what has been your take on live streams of concerts? And you've you've written about this for The Guardian on uh, the uh, I enjoyed the title of of that piece, <laughs> Instagram. How are we feeling? Would you like to comment on a little bit on the music side of things as well? Yeah, I would. <laughs> um... I wish I could say that that was my title, but that was the very clever subs. <laughs> um, but yeah, man, it's so different. Music works so differently. Like the economics of how people get paid for their work are so different in music than they are in theatre. And what that, I found that really interesting. And I think one of the fundamental like bonuses of being a musician rather than a theatre maker in this time is that presumably you have recorded music you can sell. Um, probably um much like those theater companies with work in the vaults that we were talking about earlier whereas if you're a smaller theater company and you you don't have merchandise or you don't have an album to sell I think that impetus to make something is really there that said the majority of an artist's income these days does come from touring and live shows so I'm not suggesting you know if people valued the album more we, and we didn't have Spotify, for example, if people paid for their music, the, our musicians wouldn't be in a crisis right now because they wouldn't be completely reliant on the income of touring. So, yeah, um, there's a thinker called Matt Dryhurst um, who's really smart on this kind of stuff. And he tweeted the other day, you know, if only musicians had like, you know, maybe like a recorded piece of work, maybe like 50 minutes long that they could sell to people. Like, maybe that would help. Um, you know, he makes a, a good point. Um, and so, yeah, it's been very interesting to see musicians try and monetize kind of live gigs. And I think I, I've more predominantly seen musicians take to Instagram Live and just do, like, free-to-access, stripped-back, maybe, like, acoustic sessions, talking to fans and encouraging them to request songs, which feels more like a... PR campaign hey don't forget about me I'm still here rather than any kind of viable economic alternative then on the flip an artist that I really love Angel Olsen she has already had her tour this year so she's in a, in a lucky position but she did a very similar stripped back night of songs that fans can request but she ticketed it like 
it kind of like an Eventbrite style, like you'd buy a, a ticket to access that live stream link ahead of time. And then once you had that link, even if you couldn't show up to the performance in that time, like maybe you're abroad and it's happening late at night for you, um, that recording of that live performance remained online for 24 hours afterwards. So you could watch it at any time. And so I don't know if that worked out financially for her or not, but it's interesting to watch people experiment with ways of gatekeeping access, I guess, or kind of different kinds of ticketing and documentation systems, I think is what I mean, um, mm -hmm. to try and figure out how to charge, basically. Um, and it's different on all different platforms too. And it's, and it's different if you're a DJ than if you're a you know, singer-songwriter because on some platforms, if you play someone else's um, content, which is often what DJs do, um, it can get taken down or flagged. Um, so yeah, it's been fascinating watching people like navigate which social media platforms would be the most appropriate for the delivery of their work. Plus, could they monetize it or not? Um, I don't know the answers yet. But again, my, my feeling remains the same, which is I really wish everybody didn't have to panic, you know? Like, I, if you're a music fan, it's easier than being a theatre fan. I just advise you to go and buy some albums, <laughs> I guess. But yeah. yeah. I am wondering if there is some silver lining to come out of this and if the pandemic has illuminated problems in these performing arts industries that existed before we were on lockdown and whether you think there are any positive any positive opportunities that could come from from this being illuminated do you see alternate ways of artists sharing their work or getting paid or credited for their work that could that could remain going forward oh totally I really hope so um I, I keep varying between you know this is all apocalyptic and doing digital gigs is going to become the new streaming 2.0 and then musicians won't have income from that either cry cry kind of system of way of thinking to then being like you know hey this is a huge like you said a huge kind of searchlight has been beamed upon the flaws in our industries and how in many ways they aren't working for the artists or for the fans of those artists um so I really hope it does provide the impetus to kind of shake things up and make people who have control to those you know bodies of funding and so on like really think about what they're doing um I hope it makes fans think twice about how they're consuming the art of their, of their favorite artists too, to be honest. Um, but yeah, I am kind of, kind of optimistic, <laughs> I guess. I like the idea that people will have seen the potential in and kind of use of digital tools more broadly and that maybe this might help us to stop thinking of it as like a exact opposition to a live quote-unquote live experience um mm. but maybe something that could be just a different tool in an artist's toolbox do you know um mm -hmm. that's if I'm feeling really optimistic <laughs> um that's what I would like to happen but like when I was 
thinking about talking to you today. I kept thinking about um, there was something I can't remember whether it was you or Grace that said it in an other episode of the Art Life. Um, it was the one about um, like collaboration and bartering. Um, I think uh-huh. it was last year, and I think it was you. I think you read a quote, and it it said you know, are you running a business or are you not is like a decision that you have to think about <laughs> um, when you're trying to make money from your work. And I, I kind of have been thinking about that a lot today and this week, just in terms of, I think what this might do is push people to think, maybe push artists to think, look, this is my business. I can't give things away for free. Mm. And I don't know what that means for like, the kind of shaky foundations of like the streaming music empire that we have right now. But I can only hope that there'll be a sea change because it's not working at all. Um, Which sounds like a negative way to find a silver lining. (laughs) It's like, we've got to have the revolution first, but then I think Mm -hmm. it will be good is kind of what I'm saying. (laughs) It sounds almost empowering. I think almost. Yeah. I mean, I know we're kind of too tired to be empowered right now, but we can be empowered later is right what I hope (laughs) there's time yeah and I think right now what is also being illuminated is the value of the arts as a lot of people are stuck at home and appreciating these performances that they can access online whether it's an Instagram live of a musician or a pre-recorded swoopy national theater production (laughs) I think people are starting to realize what is really bringing them solace and um and something <laughs> liveness yeah, sure. dare i say <laughs> yeah and like can you imagine that first night when we can all go and see a band or like see a show and how good that's gonna feel mm. i think about that a lot at the moment which kind of goes against my own research and I'm aware of that, (laughs) but uh, it's going to feel so good. So yeah, I really look forward to that. Well, Katie, I would like to be one of those art fans who is thinking twice about the way that I am consuming artists' works. And you mentioned buying albums directly from musicians is a great Mm -hmm. way to send direct support right now. Are there any other factors that I should consider in choosing my entertainment and performance platforms, how to support, um, how to support artists in this digital temporary space? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question, and it's definitely something I'm still figuring out. I think in my utopia or dictatorship, (laughs) whichever comes first, (laughs) I would really like to see artists not having to rely on, you know, Instagram or YouTube um, to to make an income in this way because it's ultimately just kind of feeding back into the pockets of, you know, mega corporations, and that's not the point of this exercise right now. but that hasn't happened yet. I'm working on taking those down. So in the meantime, um, I've been reading about schemes where um, theatre fans who'd say bought a ticket for a show coming up next month that's now obviously not going to take place 
could donate that ticket price back to their theatres, you know, kind of just not claim it back. And I'm pretty sure that, that could be replicable on a personal level. Um, or even if you know that there was a show you would probably go and see, it could be worth ringing up and find asking if they take donations. You know, you're like, I'm sure I would have come and seen something in the next six months. So please, like, here, like, take what I would have spent as an insurance that I'll come and see something in the future. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I hate, I don't want to make it sound like it's only money, but I think ultimately help at this moment is quite transactional. It's people need basic things, right? Um, so yeah, other than that, you know, it's a great time to support your favourites, but it's also an amazing time to look for new favourites too. So um, I guess... I was just going to say follow your heart but I guess that is kind of what I mean you know like support who you want to support and if some if you know you enjoy a song from somebody on the radio like maybe make the extra effort of looking that person up and you know buying the single or something that's such an old-fashioned thing to say but I think that's kind of I love it we need right now do you know we need to kind of if you're able to financially able obviously and if you're not don't feel pressured at all but if you can then I think that's what we all need to do right now go buy a record yeah and I know it's harder for theatre but I think getting in touch with with the theatre company you might have been more likely to go and see and saying hey look here's here's a tenor is not a bad way to go at the moment yeah um I love that so yeah that's all I can think of (laughs) so I highly recommend that everyone go and read your two pieces that you've written for The Guardian on live streaming music and for the stage on live streaming theater. And I will leave links to those in our show notes. And I'll also link to your Twitter at Katie Hawthorne. Was there anywhere else that you want to direct people to for following (laughs) Um your work? No, and thank you for doing the links. That's great. I think Twitter, um, but it's not always helpful, my tweets. So <laughs> be prepared, but that would be lovely. So if anyone has anyone listening wants to talk more about the nerdy side to all of this, I'm always down. So <laughs> Awesome. And I wanted to give you this space as well. If there was anything else that you we haven't talked about yet or that we um or that you wish you had space to include in these articles was there anything else that you wanted to share with everyone about this topic in general um i don't know if this is like a fully formed thought yet <laughs> but i've been feeling really happy and excited about the fact that this pandemic and push towards streaming has kind of dissolved like yeah geographical boundaries to accessing work that you'd never normally get to see you know and like this definitely goes for theater fans more than musicians I think but um you know I've never been to the Met I've never been to New York and so suddenly being able to you know watch one of their productions is incredible and there's so much amazing work happening all over the world and that actually feels like such a massive plus to me and I can't believe I forgot to mention it earlier that like you can now go on a on a voyage around all of those you know great European theatre houses many of whom are streaming shows with um English subtitles um 
and you know see work that you'd literally never see otherwise and that feels like such an amazing way of expanding the walls of my little flat you know um so that's definitely a positive that should be said I think well we can be such globe trotters virtually exactly. from our homes it's very exciting so, so glamorous who'd have thought so and so know. comfy so much leg room <laughs> exactly in your pajamas like what a dream so it is the dream katie thank you so much for bringing your expertise and your thoughts to the art life i am so excited to share this episode with everyone and hear their thoughts as well but we always close the show as you know by asking what is the art life so what is the art life i've been thinking about this i knew it was coming and i hoped <laughs> well i don't i hope that i'd have like a more profound answer for you but the only thing i can think of to say is that for me the art life is proudly liking what you like and or proudly doing what you like yeah. That's yeah. All. That's that's all I've got. <laughs> that's all it is. Well, I love the yeah. simplicity of that and especially in in this time where we are feeling the need to reach out and do something. I think mm. I'm going to remember your words as just keep liking what I like and follow my heart. Yeah, I mean, it's cheesy, but it's true, right? I mean, yeah. and if your heart wants The Sims right now, it wants The Sims. So The Sims, maybe I should have just said The Sims. The Sims is my art life. <laughs> <laughs> we, well, you are also my Sims buddy. And um, thank you for, <laughs> thank you for playing The Sims with me. And also oh my thank gorgeous. you You're for so your welcome. words. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It's been so fun. Welcome back, Grace. Thank you. Now it's your turn. What is the art life? The art life is creating magic. Yay. I loved this this um this thing this is part of her interview that you also like picked up on and reiterated within the interview where she talks about the intentional mistakes that performers mm -hmm. will make to create this magic in the room to to make people feel special to make people feel like they're part of something and witnessing something unique every night um and it is a little bit of a magic trick you know but it's still special uh, that doesn't make it like fake. It just means that they, the artists so, so sincerely want to create something unique and special for each audience. Um, so the art life is creating magic. I knew you would like that part. I did. What is the art life? The art life is alive. Ah, uh, <laughs> I, ah. Uh. <laughs> It was it was really cool to talk to Katie, who is a an academic and has been researching this topic, and to hear her again talk about magic and that that feeling, and um, in her like, professional research opinion, 
uh, say that the arts are magical. So um, I have been inspired to think about more ways to capture that feeling of being alive in the performance that I do throughout my life as an individual, as someone who runs a virtual community. I've been thinking about the virtual exercise classes that I've been attending and what feels live in that context. So she's really rejuvenated my the way that I think about engaging not just with theater specifically, but with all these all these little things that count as performance. Well, and speaking of like engaging with performance, like with your audience and with performers, I just wanted to say I really appreciated this moment where she said, take the extra time to look up artists. If you're listening to a playlist or you're listening to the radio Mm. and you, you know, you hear a song you like, take the time to buy their single because you know financially things are so hard right now especially for like musicians um not just especially i mean the whole conversation about theater only you know only reinforced that it's hard for everyone right now but um i really loved that because she just gave such a practical mm. step she gave she said here's something you can do right now and it does matter you know it, it's like 99 cents for a song it does matter you are making a difference. Yeah. And I just love being able to leave the episode with something that, you know, an action item I can take mm-hmm. to feel like I'm helping someone out. I love that. I'm excited to hear what song you choose. Or songs. Or songs. We'll see. Song of the week. Yeah. Song of the week. So I just want to say thank you so much to Katie. It was a phenomenal interview. I really, I hope she, I hope she, um, continues to you know educate others on the value of these live stream tech like the live stream technology and i like i'm excited to see her career flourish you know i'm just so excited to see how she takes like her knowledge and helps artists with it oh my goodness me too and i am also excited to hear what you the audience has learned from this conversation and the new ways that you are thinking about liveness please get in touch with us tell katie and uh i'm just excited to keep this conversation going well everyone thank you for joining us today let us know if there's anyone out there that you think would be a good fit to be interviewed on this show next In the meantime, from my side of the world, good morning. And from my side of the world, good night. Bye. Bye. This is The Art Life, a heroin training podcast with Grace Gordon and me, Zandra Robinson-Burns. You can find us online at theartlife.show and send letters to The Art Life, care of Grace Gordon, P.O. Box number 4292, Valley Village, California, 91607, or email us, theartlife at heroinetraining.com. Our theme music is The Stream by Rory. 
Thank you for joining us.